for we hope you guys enjoyed the snow. I hope you like boats and floods because that's coming. I uh, hope you were ready for that as well. We've been away from the book of Hebrews for a little while, so I want you to open it up, get to chapter 9. <clears throat> I've been away from it for about a month now, and so I need to kind of recap and let us kind of, you know, get get our, you know, find where we're at a little bit and, and understand the flow of the book overall uh, just from the get-go. And so a little bit of a recap. Remember, contextually, this book was written to Jewish converts in Rome who were facing persecution. Intense persecution. And so the author is writing to them knowing that they are facing a temptation in that persecution to turn back to Judaism, to turn back to what they uh, had grown up with because it was protected and turn away from this new thing called the way, this new thing of Christianity because of the temptation, uh, because of the persecution to turn away from that. And turn back to Judaism. And so the author is writing to them saying, don't do that. Don't shrink back. Don't turn away. Don't fall back. Because that stuff doesn't work. Don't turn back. Jesus is better than all that you once relied on. And so that's kind of the flow of the whole book. Is this argument of don't shrink back. Keep going. Endure whatever's coming. Because Jesus is better than whatever you would turn to. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the priests. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than the sacrificial system. He mediates a better covenant. And he has an, he offers a better redemption and eternal redemption. Don't turn back. Keep going. And so the call goes out to us as well in the same way. In the 21st century and whatever we face in our lives in a anti-Christian culture, a post-Christian culture, don't shrink back. Don't turn away because Jesus is better. He's better than sexuality. He's better than partisan politics. He's better than being liked by others for accommodating yourself to the shifting sands of cultural whims. He's better than the American dream. He's better than the praise of man. He's better than the positive outcome of your circumstances. He's better than your opinions. He's better than any God replacement that you can come up with. Because he's God alone. There is no other. And so because Jesus is better, we can endure whatever comes. That's more pandemics or that's a return to Roman Empire level persecution. Jesus is better. And so we press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. He's better. All right. So that's the big picture of the book. But in chapter nine in particular, the author kind of gives us a compare and contrast between the old covenant, what we normally refer to as like the Old Testament and the new covenant based upon the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. But there's too much to try to go through. I mean, I love you guys. We're not going to try to go through chapter 9 completely today. We're going to break it into two separate sections. So today will be a little bit heavy on the Old Covenant. Next week will be a little bit more heavy on the New Covenant. And so today, chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. All right? But in order to... the, The reason we're going to do it that way is because in order to better... In order to understand the fact that Jesus is better and offers a better redemption, we first have to understand what came prior, the Old Covenant. And so this morning, I just want to give you three kind of 
big ideas about the Old Covenant. It's not the good, the bad, and the ugly, but it kind of sounds that way a little bit. The good, the problem, and the solution. All right, as it relates to the Old Covenant, the good, the problem, and the solution. So look at chapter 9 with me. I had Ted to read from chapter 8 because this is where the idea of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant kind of introduced better promises, um, a better covenant, the old one's passing away, and then chapter 9 really develops this thought. So the good, the problem, and the solution. Chapter 9, verse 1, read along with me. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for a tent or a tabernacle was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Or the Holy of Holies. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, the, the Ten Commandments. Above it, so on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So it really looked like a throne. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Like, i got to get on with my argument, all right? But we got a little bit of time, so I am going to take us through a little bit of these things. All right? And so the first thing I want to highlight is just the good about the Old Covenant, okay? And here is what it is. The Old Covenant, and especially the tabernacle, foreshadowed and pointed to the gospel. All right? So number one in your notes. The Old Covenant, especially the tabernacle, foreshadowed and pointed to to the gospel. This is the good about it. All right? So the tabernacle, like if you don't have a background in the church, it, it was a tent. God instructed Moses to uh, build it uh, as a place of worship and a reminder that he was with them. All right? Now, thousands of years later, they would build a more elaborate and decorative one uh, called the temple. It was permanent. And it, but it was the same thing as the tabernacle, just a lot fancier and permanent place of worship, and the sign of God's presence. And so as I've said before, in a lot of ways, like for me, word pictures help. So when, you think, when I think of the tabernacle, and I've shared this with you before, I like to think of it as like a pop-up book, right? And so uh, one of Eden's favorite movies is Trolls, right? And you've got King Poppy, and you've got... Uh, Eden, what is, what is the princess's name? Poppy. What's her dad's name? Peppy, gotcha. So King Peppy, but then Poppy is the young one's name, okay? And Poppy is this over, like just super boppy, happy, bubbly. Like I couldn't stand to be around her that much if she was a real person. She's so bubbly, so positive all the time. And she's always making these like uh, pop-up scrapbooks and cards or whatever. But the way, you know, the pop-up thing looks, if you have a book of you read with the kids, you turn the page and there's this thing that pops up. You turn the page and there's this thing that pops up. Well, that's kind of how the tabernacle works with all the def- different furniture that's in there. Each page is like a 3D little picture of some aspect of the gospel. And the first one that we see here in chapter 9 is the lampstand. And it represents the fact that God is light and there is no darkness at all in him. 
But the symbolism is pointed especially to Jesus who says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And similarly, John 1, 5, in him, talking about Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so that's the first 3D pop-up picture we get from the tabernacle. It shows us Jesus. It pictures him. He is the light of the world. And though it may look dark in our world, in your life, the light shines into the darkness and the darkness will not overcome the light. And so cling to Christ. Endure. Keep going. Second page of the pop-up book of the tabernacle is the table and bread of presence. And this picture is God's provision, both practically and spiritually. I mean, practically, God gave the Israelites, wandering in the desert, what did he give them? To eat. Manna from heaven. He provided bread to them. That's who he is. He is a provider. He provides. And practically, in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, give us this day our daily bread. God does that. He provides our needs that we have. But man does not live on bread alone. The true bread that the bread of life, that, that, that this bread points to is the bread of life. And so John chapter 6, verse 32, Jesus says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Friends, your idols cannot satisfy your hunger. They cannot satisfy your thirst. Our idols are just like drugs. They will give you a hit. You will get a fix for a minute, and then you need more, and then you need more, and then you need more, and then you need more. Only the bread of life can satisfy your soul. And he who comes to him shall not hunger, and whoever comes to him shall not thirst. And so it says in our text that there's two sections in the tabernacle. There's the first section, that's what we call the holy place. So you can see up here, you've got, and I'm going to walk and point at this one, but between the two blue curtains, like that's the holy place. And then on the other side, you have the Ark of the Covenant, and that's the most holy place. That's the holy of holies, and it is shut off. It is, I'm good, well, maybe. Uh, yeah, just, we're good. He's bringing me some water. But it's the, thank you, sir. It's shut off. It's separated from the rest of the area, the rest of the tabernacle. Behind it, that's the Holy of Holies. It's the most holy place. And what it represents is like that's the area that most, that God's presence is most manifested in, is in the Holy of Holies. It's separated off from the rest of the tabernacle by a four-inch thick curtain, 60 feet high, and the only piece of furniture that was actually in there was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I know it says here something about the 
altar of incense, but that's just more in conjunction with the Day of Atonement. It wasn't actually behind there, but he's going to make an argument about that later. And so let's just talk Ark of the Covenant, all right? Indiana Jones, here we go. Ark of the Covenant. The next page in our pop-up book. And it simultaneously shows us both the holiness of God and our hope at the same time. Like it shows us the holiness of God because if you touch it, what happens? You die. That holy. Representing the holiness of God. You touch it, you die. It's separated off from the rest of the temple. Normal folks can't go back there. Only the high priest can. And even he only one day out of the year bringing blood, bringing sacrifice. And they tie a rope around him when he goes back there in case he dies so they can pull him out. It represents the holiness of God. Showing us that God is holy. Way more holy than we can imagine. We are way more sinful than we can imagine. We can't come into his presence on our own. And so as David Strain puts it, everything about the ark so far has screamed exclusion. Even the cherubim that are on top of it, the cherubim that are on the curtain, painted on the curtain uh, that separates it. You'll remember Genesis chapter 3, there's cherubim keeping Adam and Eve from going back into the Garden of Eden. They separate. It's separate. Everything screams separateness, exclusion. Everything about the ark. And then the wall contained within the ark, the Ten Commandments, condemns everyone who broke it. That's all of us. The gold encasing it spoke of royal splendor and majesty. It's exclusive. The cherubim covering it recalled Eden and our exclusion from the presence of God because of sin. And the mercy seat itself is considered to be the very throne of God. And it's shut from view by the wings of the angels that are bowing down. The holiness of God, the message is clear, the holiness of God shuts us out. That's one thing it shows. And yet, this is the very presence, the very place where atonement was made. Right there in the midst of this. Once a year, the high priest would go back there, sprinkle the blood of the saints, sacrifice. And so right there on the throne, right there between the cherubim, right there, the Ark of the Covenant... It's where impure sinners like me, like you, were pardoned. That's why the ark pictures both the holiness of God and our hope. Because here's something that you need to see. In Exodus 25 through 27, where it's describing the building of this tabernacle, there, were, there was a translation that came around 200 B.C. called the Septuagint. It was, it was in Greek, so the Old Testament was originally in Hebrew. And when it translated the word mercy seat, it used the word propitiation. That's the word that it used for mercy seat. And propitiation is a word that means the, uh, it means a substitutionary atonement has been made. And it is accepted. It satisfies divine wrath. And the biggest thing to see in conjunction with that is that that is the word propitiation in the New Testament that is always used to refer to the work of Christ. And so like John 1, 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. Again, mercy seat. And not our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Like this is pointing to Jesus. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're in Romans 3 here. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. 
mercy seat by his blood to be received by faith. Like the mercy seat is a propitiation. It's where it happens and it points forward to Jesus. Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, mercy seat for the sins of the people. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, mercy seat for our sins. And so, yes, the ark pictures God's holiness, but friends, it also preaches Christ to us. It is pointing forward to him. He bridges the gap between sinful, you and me, and a holy God. He is the propitiation for our law-breaking. He is our hope and our only hope. And a guaranteed hope for all who repent and believe. And so the good of the tabernacle is pointing to Jesus with these 3D pop-up pictures. But what's proclaimed here in Black and white and analog goes full color, 4K, ultra high definition. When Jesus comes in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Because again, mining into the words, the word dwelt literally is the same. I mean, it's the same word as tabernacled. And Jesus came, became flesh and tabernacled. Among us. Like that's what the tabernacle is pointing forward to. To Christ in his fullness. And he came and he's made his presence with us. He is Emmanuel. God with us. Always. Like know this. Through faith God has taken up residence in your soul. And he doesn't. I mean he doesn't rent. He owns, he lives, he stays, he doesn't move out. Which means in Christ you were never alone. Ever. Christ, he is with you. And so for those who are anxious this morning, for those who are dominated by fear, remember this. You are not alone. God is not aloof. He's not, you know, uh, out to lunch, be back in a little while. He is with you in the mess and in the mire and the gloom. Tabernacle with you forever, moment by moment. And so this is the good that the tabernacle points to, okay? Points to. The problem, though, is that it's just a pointer. That's all it is. It's just a pointer. The old covenant has no power to save, only forestall. And so number two in your notes, write that. The problem is the old covenant had no power to save, only forestall. Couldn't save you. Just forestall. And so look at verse six with me. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. All right, talking about the Day of Atonement. Once, it goes in once a year, every year, over and over and over and over and over and over and over, thousands of years. All right? And by this, that repetition, the Holy Spirit indicates 
that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age or the age of that time. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Like, it can't change you. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. That is, until the time that Jesus comes. And so, in other words, what this whole you know, section is saying, these five verses, is that the Old Covenant has no power to save, only forestall. And so it's like the snow that we just had. Let's say that, you know, you started back to school on Tuesday or Wednesday, and you had a test on Friday. Well, the snow has no power to take that test completely away. It just pushed it out a little ways. It just pushed it out a few days. It's the same thing with the Old Covenant. That's how it worked. It could not save you. It just pushed out God's coming judgment for a little bit longer. And then the next year, pushed it out. And then the next year, pushed it out. And then the next year, pushed it out. Foreshadowing and pointing to the day when salvation actually would come through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so what the Holy Spirit was indicating, verse 8, by the year after year after year repetition of the Day of Atonement, was the final sacrifice would someday come. Like as long as there was a curtain between the holy place and the most holy place, the people were not fully in the presence of God. He was present with them, tabernacled with them, literally in the desert. But as long as it was there, they they could not draw near to God with confidence. The veil separated them, indicating an incompleteness and an inability to approach God. But when Jesus died on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, the veil in 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 the temple was torn from top to bottom. Announcing to the world that sinners like all of us can now come directly into the presence of God because of the work of Christ. Because not only did he take our sins away, but he gave to us his righteousness, his perfect life, his sinlessness. And it is that that enables us to stand in the presence of holy God. We have a righteousness that is not our own but is the very righteousness of Christ bestowed in grace on all who would believe, for all who would fling themselves upon the mercy and forgiveness of God that they do not deserve, but that He loves to hand out. And so if the problem with the Old Covenant was that it had no power to save, only forestall, with the number three in your notes, the solution is a better high priest with a once-for-all-time sacrifice. No need to be repeated. A better high priest with a once-for-all-time sacrifice. And so look at verse 11. We're starting to turn into looking at the new covenant a little bit. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Like, we have good things now. There's an already not yet. This is kind of a semi-eschatological deal. We, we are saved, but we are not yet saved all the way. We haven't been glorified. We're not with Jesus fully. We have the Holy Spirit with us, but we are not with Christ in heaven. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of his creation. Chapter 7 talks about how the tabernacle is modeled after heaven. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, Jesus' priesthood actually accomplished the salvation that the Old Covenant pointed to. Jesus has laid down a once-for-all-time sacrifice. It doesn't have to keep happening over and over and over and over. Like when Jesus proclaimed, Tadalestai, it is finished. He meant it. He wasn't joking. You don't have to go back and re-sacrifice over and over and over. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was slain for you and me and anybody, anybody, anybody who will but receive it. And through this once for all time sacrifice, he secured, verse 12, an eternal redemption for us. An eternal redemption, which means in Christ you are secure. Not because you're deserving. That's not the question. If that's the question, then no, you're not secure. You're secure because Jesus secured it. Thus securing an eternal redemption. Not just forestalling. Securing an eternal redemption. And so it's not temporary. It's not conditional. It's free for anyone who would accept it. For anyone who would admit that they are a sinner and are deserving of God's wrath against sin because of His justice and holiness. But then trusting by faith that Jesus has paid for your sin. That He was your once for all time sacrifice. And has given to you Imputed to you his righteousness. Not just taking your sin. That's part of it. But also given to you his righteousness. And so now the judge slams the gavel down. Not guilty because of this guy. And not only are you not guilty. But now as a judge I'm going to climb over the bench. I'm going to turn around. And I am going to adopt you into my family. As a son. As a daughter. You will be mine, you will be my family, you will be my people, I will be your God, and I will love you and be on your side forever. I was reading about uh, Eugene Peterson. He's the guy who did the uh, paraphrase of um, uh, the Bible called The Message, right? Something that's like, I mean, I'm going to read a translation, not a paraphrase, but sometimes when I'm having difficulty understanding something, I'll read the paraphrase. He did a pretty good job. But he was a pastor for a long, long time, and uh, he died, I guess, a couple years ago now, and his son, um, Leif, uh, spoke at the, you know, at the funeral, and 
he said, hey, I'm going to let you in on a secret. My father actually only had one message. Uh, and it was a, a message that for 29 years he just, you know, repackaged and delivered over and over and over. And it's the thing that he would come and speak in, speak over me as I slept. And it's that God loves you. He is for you. He is coming after you. And he is relentless in his love. Do you believe that? That he loves you? This eternal redemption is not an eternal tolerating of you. It's born out of love. That he loves you. That he's for you. Even in the hardships, even in the things we get wrong, even in the things when we blow it and we, we deal with the consequences of that, that's not him against you. He's for you. I mean, you guys who, you know, dedicated um, your child this morning. You, I mean, I'm looking at Chad for a minute. I know you are so for your kids. You would do anything in the world for them including having to do the hard things that makes them cry, it makes them angry, because at this point you know better. Now, there'll come a day where you don't know better. It's around 16. <laughs> but then they, I've been told, we hit 25, and they kind of flip back and realize, ah, Mom and Dad do know better. But you would do anything. And that is God with each one of us. He loves us. Chad does not tolerate his kids. He loves them. The father does not tolerate his kids. He loves them. He's for them. He's for you forever. And he's coming after you. And he's relentless in his love. And so this is what Jesus does for us. He is a better high priest with a once-for-all-time sacrifice securing eternal redemption and purifying our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. And so if you have not trusted in Jesus as Savior, trust Him. Like He offers it freely out of love. Out of love He offers this to anyone. So trust Him. Put your faith in Him. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior, knowing that He loves you. He is for you. He's come after you. And He's relentless in that. So receive Him today. Trust Him by faith. Let somebody know. Or ask questions. I'd be glad to talk to you about that. And if you have trusted Jesus as Savior, as Lord, then actually trust Him. Like, actually, trust Him. It's an eternal redemption, not a temporary one. It's an unconditional redemption, not a conditioned one, conditional on your performance one. And it's a loving redemption, not a I'll tolerate you redemption. It's not a redemption where He scolds you for your repeated offenses, but hugs you tight and says, Beloved, don't go that route. Don't keep repeating those things that only harm your conscience. Don't pursue dead works. But seek and serve the living God. That's the pathway to life, child. 
And so press on. Keep going. Don't stop. Don't shrink back. Because Jesus is better. And this redemption that he offers is eternal, is final and full. And so rejoice, sinners. And that's me. And that's you. Rejoice. Would you pray? Father, I do pray for anyone in this room who has not yet trusted you by faith, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would prick their hearts, that you would be a pebble in their shoe that they cannot ignore until they would confess and believe. And Father, I pray for those of us who maybe have been followers for a long time, or a short time, that we would actually trust you. That if we can trust you with our eternal soul, we can trust you with tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Father, burn in us a true sense that you love us, you are for us, you come after us, and you are relentless in your love. In Christ's name, amen.